Hey, story people. Uh, this week, we're sharing a little something different on the Story Houston's podcast. Instead of a sermon, we're going to share two episodes of the Maybe God podcast. It's actually two parts of one episode called Our Near-Death Experiences for Real. And you may have heard people talking about the Maybe God podcast. You may have listened to every episode, but it's occurred to me recently that as the story has continued to grow since 2018, when we started Maybe God, there are a lot of people who come to the story who've never heard a single episode. Our near-death experiences for real is our most popular episode ever. And I think uh, these two parts of this one episode changed a lot of lives. And so we wanted to put them out on the Story Houston's platform this week. I hope you'll give them a listen. And if you enjoy them, I hope you'll share these episodes with your friends. Also, if you want to hear all our past episodes of the Maybe God podcast, you can visit maybegodpod.com or just check out the podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, I obviously I hope you'll click subscribe. One reason we really wanted to get these particular shows out is because of our current sermon series called After. I'm preaching about the afterlife for seven or eight weeks at the story, and all of our small groups are studying the material that was produced by John Burke from Austin, uh, who wrote Imagine Heaven. And that's the book that our podcast episodes is based on. So it all works together, and I hope that you'll give these a listen as we take a deeper dive into this subject of what happens after we die. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoy these shows. On this episode of Maybe God. I, I was 100% convinced that death was just like, turn the light switch off, it's over. Immediately I was engulfed in this golden, pure light, and I just fell right to my knees. And I remember just worshiping and crying because I recognized God. I didn't meet God. I recognized him. And she's saying, you've got to go back, you can't come. And that was an interesting moment of choice because here I was looking at the woman I loved more than life, and yet knowing I had a seven-year-old son crying in the backseat of that car, and I made a choice to come back. The more I resisted, the more they enjoyed tormenting me, biting and tearing and invading me in every way that they could. Here, this God that I had feared my entire life scooped me up and held me in his love. God knew how dirty and broken I was. And yet he scooped me up. And yet he scooped me up. Why these near-death testimonies and hundreds of others convinced Pastor John Burke that God, Jesus, heaven, and hell are all real. A few months ago, it seemed like everyone in my church was reading the same book and insisting that I read it too. It's a New York Times bestselling book called Imagine Heaven by Pastor John Burke, who on the surface looks like a typical type A megachurch preacher. But after graduating college, Burke worked as an engineer for several years before entering the ministry in his late 20s. Today, he leads a church of over 4,000 people in Austin, Texas. What makes his journey so different from other pastors that I've met is the way that he came to faith in Christ by listening to people's near-death experiences, 
people who technically died and came back with stories to tell about what they saw and what they heard when they crossed over. We're going to hear some of those stories soon. When I traveled to Austin earlier this month to interview John, I had no idea what to expect. I certainly didn't think I was going to find in this big-time pastor a kindred spirit. But that's exactly what happened. John and I quickly realized we share a lot in common, starting with our deep doubts related to God and religion, doubts which began to surface in us at an early age. I grew up going to church, but it was kind of a social deal. I had a lot of questions. I have a very analytical mind. I ended up becoming an engineer, if that gives you any <laughs> clue. But I got old enough and I felt like, I don't think anybody can answer my questions. And I kind of thought, maybe there's a God. I don't know. Jesus, probably a myth. I don't know if any of this is true. And I just kind of didn't believe in anything except the next party. And that's where I was living uh, when my father got cancer. One day I saw a book that someone had given him on his nightstand, and it was the first book on near-death experiences. This is, you know, back in the 80s. And um, I picked it up. I read the whole thing in one night, and I said, oh, my gosh, this Jesus stuff may be real. And if so, I got to find out. John was 18 at the time, and that book on his dad's nightstand led to a 30-year journey studying over a 1,000 near-death experiences. If you're anything like me, you're feeling pretty skeptical about John right now. I've always chalked near-death experiences up to wishful thinking or something explainable, like the final neurons firing in the brain before a person actually dies. I've always filed NDEs in the same folder as horoscopes. They're fun to think about, maybe, but that's about it. That's why I was surprised when John wasn't a sensationalist or the type who is prone to wishful thinking. He's an analytical guy. He's not looking for a fairy tale to escape his mortality. He's looking for the truth, just like the rest of us. I'll be honest. I sometimes go, oh my gosh, God, how did you get me here? Like, I would have been looking at me going, wacko, you know, the <laughs> near-death experience stuff. But what convinced me is the same thing that convinced so many skeptical cardiologists and oncologists. I mean, these are doctors who uh, start to hear from their patients. And by the way, if they don't ask, the patients don't tell them because these experiences are not like a dream, kind of like, oh, I had the weirdest dream. Like, ha ha, you know, funny. Yeah. It's like a sacred experience. And it's a confusing experience because oh, sure. the truth is they're back on this earth, but they don't want to be. Typically, if they had a good, they had a good experience. heavenly experience, yeah. they don't want to be here. One of the cardiologists I interviewed, uh, Dr. Sabum, he actually set out to prove that near-death experiences were not true. He had never heard one from any of his patients, but then he starts asking them. And Dr. Sabum said he listened to like this guy, Pete Morton, who described his resuscitation. And he said, if I had taped it, I could have used it to train other physicians. And so for five years, he researches and ends up coming to believe, no, these are really real. This is something real. And he publishes in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Dr. Jeff Long reads it in JAMA and says, no, no way. He's a radiation oncologist. He's never heard any of these. Yeah. He starts to ask his patients. He's now collected 4,000 of them. Wow. And says they provide such overpowering scientific evidence that there is an afterlife. And, and what's crazy is these are people have zero 
need to make up crazy wild stories to sell books or make money. Yeah. You know, that's that's the skeptical kind of like, oh, they're making this up. They want to make a buck. Sensationalist well, kind if, of, if, yeah. If you're a, a surgeon married to a surgeon living in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. You have more to lose. What, you have a ton more to lose. If you're a tenured college professor, if you're a commercial airline pilot, if you're a bank president, why are you going to make this up? Olson was a junior at Utah State University playing Division I football when he met Tamara. When she walked in and I saw her, it was like a lightning bolt hit me. It was like, bam, there she is. It was beyond love at first sight. It was like a deeper knowing. The family always teased us because even at family outings, it wasn't enough for her to sit next to me. She had to be sitting like right on my lap, arms around me, just very affectionate, very, very much in love. And Many looked at our relationship and just thought, gosh, that's just cheesy. And yet to us, it was absolutely perfect. And um, we were married for 10 years and never lost a moment of the magic. It was, uh, it was quite a beautiful relationship. Tamara was a high school teacher who, according to Jeff, was filled with compassion and very spiritual. Jeff had a successful career as a creative director at an advertising agency in Salt Lake City. First, the couple welcomed their son Spencer to the family, followed by Griffin, in 1997, they all spent Easter weekend with Tamara's parents. On Monday morning, they buckled in for the five-hour drive home. I put the car in drive, hit the interstate, and cranked it up to 75 and set the cruise control and was racing, you know, home. I mean, I was a day late at work. I was thinking about all the things I needed to do. There was a million things going on. And I just happened to glance in the rearview mirror just to check traffic. But when I did, what caught my eye was my toddler, Griffin, he was just 14 months old, and he had fallen sound asleep in his car seat. And it's like all of a sudden time just stood still, and I, I looked at him, and I noticed details like how long his eyelashes were. And I just thought, what a beautiful kid. I mean, we were told we may never have more children after Spencer, so he was our miracle baby. And when I noticed him, I just glanced behind me where Spencer, our 7-year-old, was sitting, and he was playing with Star Wars action figures that he had gotten in his Easter basket with all the, you know, sounds that a little boy makes of the grandest lightsaber battle in the universe. And I just thought, what a joy. You know, he, he's such a good kid. And then I, I glanced over at my wife, Tamara, who had also reclined her seat, and she was sound asleep, but she was still holding onto my hand. And I realized, wow, 10 years into a marriage, two kids later, and she's still holding my hand the same way she did on our first date in college, you know, when I had two bucks in my pocket and took her to a dollar movie. But, but I had this moment of absolute gratitude, and of course, my attention went to the road, and I carried on driving, and it was about an hour after that that everything uh, changed. positive what happened. I mean, there was reports of crosswinds. There was reports of a red pickup truck driving erratically 
the hardest part of the story is what I believe happened, is I believe I dozed off. I think I just dozed off for a moment, and I, I swerved to the right, overcorrected to the left, and, and lost control of the car. And it was a horrific uh, automobile accident. And I, I blacked out for most of that. I don't remember, you know, the crash. I do remember losing control of the car, but I was fully conscious and aware, you know, when the car came to a stop. And the first thing I recall hearing was Spencer, my seven-year-old, crying in the back seat. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to get to my son. And that's when I realized I couldn't move. I was pinned, struggling to breathe. I was struggling to see. There was intense pain. What, what had taken place in that accident is both of my legs were crushed and shattered. My, my left leg was eventually amputated above the knee. My back had been broken. My right arm had almost been pulled off. My rib cage was damaged. My lungs were collapsing. And the seatbelt had cut through my midsection and ruptured all my intestines. I, I had no idea. All I knew as my son was crying, I wanted to get to him but couldn't move. And that's when I realized the brutal reality that no one else was crying. And that's when I was acutely aware that both Tamara, my wife, and Griffin, my youngest son, were, were killed. And that was the worst hell a man could be in, really. I mean, there I was with a hysterical seven-year-old, half the family's gone, and, and I was driving the car. I mean, the guilt, the, the remorse, the regret, the, gosh, can I just not turn back time three seconds? Tamara and their youngest son, Griffin, were killed instantly. As the gravity of what had happened started to sink in, Jeff felt a light surround him, and all his pain disappeared. I can breathe, and now I can see, and everything seems to be fine. Am I really okay? And it felt like I was lifting or raising above the accident, out of all the trauma, and I thought, this is really strange. Tamara, my wife, who I knew was deceased at the scene, suddenly she was there with me. Here she was in front of me, not traumatized, not injured, perfectly, beautifully, gloriously radiant and perfect. I'm thinking, wow, she's okay too. We're okay. That was my thought is we're okay. And she began to communicate with words. She was saying, Jeff, no, 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 you've got to go back. You've got to go back. You can't be here. And that's when I began to process, gosh, I've, I, I'm not at the accident. Perhaps I've left the body. Oh, my goodness, am I dead? You know, and I'm looking at her, and she's saying, you've got to go back. You can't come. You can't come. You've got to go back. And that was, uh, that was an interesting moment of choice because here I was looking at the woman I loved more than life, and yet knowing I had a 7-year-old son crying in the backseat of that car, and... Um, I made a choice to come back. I'm skeptical of any one near-death experience, quite honestly. Why? I think people are describing a world that truly is beyond our dimensionality. It's extra dimensional. Yeah. And so words cannot 
It's why people are very hesitant to come forward and talk about their near-death experience. You're not skeptical that they actually happened. You're I'm skeptical not skeptical that, the that they happened. I, I have come to realize that they're all reporting something that's hard to put into words, so they're having to interpret. In writing Imagine Heaven and in studying the scriptures for the last 30 years, but also studying a thousand near-death experiences, what I've realized is that we live in a bubble. Three dimensions of space, one dimension of time. Yeah. The, the best way I'd describe it is um, imagine if our lives, what we know as four dimensions, right, is actually being lived on a flat black and white screen on a wall like your TV. Death is when you are separated, whoever we are is separated from our body. Right. So imagine death, you're ripped off that flat black and white two-dimensional screen and suddenly you come out into a world all around you in a third dimension, but you couldn't even conceive of a third dimension. But now you're in this room and you can look back on that screen and see it for what it actually is in the context of a larger world. And it's a larger world of colors that you've never seen colors before. You just seen black and white. You're experiencing new dimensions. And then you have to go back and try to describe to flat, two-dimensional people what a third dimension is or black and white what color is right you just be at a loss for words yeah how would you even start i'm convinced that's what people who've had near-death experiences are trying to do oh but secondly i think it explains a lot about god too because you know one of the things peter said in the bible is to the lord a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years yeah. and that's what people who've had near-death experiences say like time works differently there huh I didn't know if it was an instant or if it lasts my whole lifetime. Wow. And the other thing they say is that that's the real life. Yeah. This is more like the shadow. Yeah. And it's interesting because it says the same thing in the scriptures in Hebrews 8. It says God had Moses make the tabernacle, which was a copy or shadow of the real one in heaven. Fascinating. All three people we interviewed for this episode, people who claimed to have died and came back to life, echoed precisely what John said about this realm being merely a copy of the true realm that lies beyond. That realm was our reality. This realm is like the dream realm. Those memories with him are so vivid the moment I pulled them up, but yet I can't remember what I went to the store for. You know, here, it was the most real experience that I've ever had. I knew this wasn't a dream, and I knew it wasn't a hallucination. I knew that it was the most important real thing that ever happened to my life. This is the crazy, weird, foggy dream. The other side is real. That, that's home. That's real. That's home. That's real. While Jeff was in what he calls a bubble of light, his body and his son Spencer were raced to the hospital. Spencer was badly bruised. Jeff was in much worse condition, and doctors quickly decided they couldn't do anything to help him, so he was taken to a level one trauma center in Salt Lake City. All I knew is I'd wrecked the car, I had said the most profound goodbye I would ever say, and I made a choice to come back, and in making that choice, I found myself moving about this hospital, this level one trauma center. And I'm encountering the doctors and the nurses and the patients and the families of the patients. I'm seeing all these people, and yet I'm seeing them in a brand new way. I mean, everyone I saw and looked at, it's as if I knew them. 
I knew them perfectly. I knew their love, their hate, their motivations, their life. I was experiencing them as if they were me. And I had this overwhelming love for them, unconditional love. I mean, everyone from the heroin addict, you know, to the saintly grandmother, I, I just had this overwhelming love and compassion for them, and I saw them as, as beautiful and perfect. And I grew up in a Christian home. I had a biblical verse come up during this whole process, and the verse was the famous one that says, Inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me, which I used to think was a nice verse about being nice. But I was experiencing it as a different oneness. I thought, gosh, the, the master teacher who said that realized that he was the man in prison. He was the beggar on the street because I was experiencing being the heroin addict, being the abused person. And here I was marveling at all that as I made my way around this hospital till I came onto a body I didn't feel anything from, a man laying on the gurney there. And I stepped forward thinking that was strange, and that's when I realized that I was looking at me. That was me, and yet that wasn't me. I was this incredible, connected being, you know, having this profound experience, but that was my body, and it was an absolute mess. It was tough to, to look at it and realize, wow, I got to get back in that. When you talk about making the choice to go back, what did you have to do to make that choice? You know, it was interesting. The choice, and in fact, there's only one cosmic rule in the universe, and that is free will and choice. We get to choose. But as I was looking at my wife thinking, wow, I want to stay, and yet as I was considering my son in that back seat, it, it almost felt that I didn't have a choice. It's like my heart knew, my soul knew I was going back. As soon as I had that intention, boom, that's when I was in the hospital. It wasn't like I flew. It wasn't like I went anywhere. It was, like, it was as natural as like walking from one room to the next. Suddenly I was just there. So the choice was not easy, but the transition was quite natural and comfortable. Getting back in the body was not. When I went back in the body, then all the pain, the trauma, the guilt, the grief, the regret, the, 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 the sheer panic, it all returned. I was in the hospital for five plus months. I was in ICU for almost three months. Um, I kept throwing pulmonary embolisms, the blood clots that lodge in your lungs. I had horrible infections, you can imagine, with the rupturing of my insides all over. It was really as if I had one foot in this realm and one foot in the next for months. I would have conversations with my deceased wife. Uh, strange things, almost trivial things maybe, about she wanted her party dresses given to the, you know, her sister-in-law. She wanted this ring given to her cousin and that one given to her niece. And she let me know about the funeral services. She was communicating this with me, and I had no idea that the family was struggling. They were going to bury two of us. And the doctors had told the family that I might not make it, so it perhaps could be three of us. My wife's family wanted to take them back down into southern Utah where we'd been visiting to bury them there, 
And yet my family was saying, well, yeah, but if Jeff dies, shouldn't we bury them together? And, and what about Spencer, this little boy that could be left orphaned? So there was quite a turmoil going on. But what Tamara had communicated to me in these strange out-of-body visits was, I want to be buried near our home where Spencer will have a place to come, where my son can find comfort. I want to be buried with Griffin in my arms. She even let me know what song she wanted sung at her services. The interesting part of the story is I, it, it's almost funny. I had been life flighted to a hospital that was not in my insurance network. And the insurance company was demanding that I be transferred to somewhere in the network. And so everyone was very upset about it. But in the end, the insurance company won out and they were going to transfer me. And in the process of doing that, they actually removed the ventilator so I was able to speak. And it was one of the days I was actually conscious, but I was able to share with these key family members, not knowing anything they had been going through, here's what Tamara wants. And it was a blessing to have that all happen. It's been 20 years since the accident, but the details are still crystal clear in Jeff's mind and the emotions are all still very raw. Jeff told me it took him 10 years before he could open up about this next experience. Five months into his hospital stay, he was finally off the narcotics and out of the ICU and a week away from going home when this happened. I rolled on my side, which I hadn't been able to sleep on my side for months. In fact, I had laid on my back so long, the back of my head had been rubbed bald. And I fell asleep and I remember thinking, wow, I've." I haven't slept like this. I mean, it felt so good to lay on my side and sleep. And yet, as I drifted into that sleep, I felt that same light come again. The, the light, like at the scene of the accident, it came, it surrounded me, all this love and comfort, and I felt as if I was rising above the hospital bed. But this time, the light actually dispensed and went away, and I was in the most beautiful glorious place. Yeah, some call it heaven, some say the other side. To me, the only word I can even put on it is I was home. I was home. It felt so beautiful, so good, so welcoming, so familiar. In fact, I began to run. And it was a very physical experience. I, I say physical because obviously I must have been out of the body, but I could feel the soft ground under my feet. I could feel the energy charging up through my legs and and I was so joyful just thinking, I'm home, I'm home. And then I got the message that I wasn't there to stay. And about that same time, I realized there was this corridor off to my left. So I began to make my way down the corridor. And as I did, at the end of the corridor was this crib. And as I peeked in the crib, there was my little griffin. There was my little toddler boy who... Um, Actually, at the accident, his car seat had broken apart, and he had been ejected from the car. But there he was in that crib, beautiful, perfect, sleeping as peacefully as when I'd looked in the rearview mirror. And so I, I scooped him up in my arms, and that felt physical. Like, I could feel his body. I could feel the heat of his body. I could feel his ribs rising with breath. And I thought, how can this be? I began to weep just holding my little boy, and I thought, Somehow the whole universe just knew that, that I needed to hold my little boy. And, um, and I, just, I just began to cry thinking, wow, how can this be? And 
every question I had, it was like they're an answer. It, it, it was like, this is real. This is real, and, and it's for you. And then I began to feel a presence come up behind me that was so overwhelming. I mean, it was so powerful, so wise, so cosmic, so big. And, and I, actually, I actually began to have deep regret come up. I thought, oh, my gosh, here I am holding my little boy. And he's dead because I crashed the car. And, 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 I, and I knew this is God coming up. I mean, I, and I had, I, you know, my upbringing was fear God. Life's a test. I'm probably failing. And here comes all the judgment. And my, my, my initial thought was, oh, I hope I'm forgiven. And as I had that thought, I felt, and it almost felt physical too, like these loving divine arms wrap around me. And the message, which wasn't even spoken in word, it was just through my whole consciousness came, there's nothing to forgive. And the message was, you're loved. Everything's in divine order. And I learned about choice again. I was given a choice. I was told, and it wasn't with words. You can feel like God ripped away your family, and you can be angry all your life about that. Or you can choose to feel guilty and beat yourself up for the rest of your life because you were driving the car. Or in this perfect divine moment, you can choose to give your son back, to literally give him back and let go. In fact, you can give your wife back too if you choose. And that way, you're exercising your will. And of course, my upbringing said, well, yeah, but isn't it thy will be done? And the answer said, my will is your will. What do you choose? How do you choose to experience what's going on? And in all that love, in all that beauty, in all that peace, I was able to kiss my little boy and, uh, and give him back. Even though his perspective changed, Jeff admits he felt homesick for an entire decade. He couldn't shake the emptiness. He wondered, where's the love in this realm? Where's the connection? He longed for those divine arms he felt in heaven. But there were moments, like the first time he came home from the hospital, that reminded him of heaven. I saw Spencer, who was only seven years old. He's peeking out the window watching his uncles, you know, my brothers, lift his dad, me, and put me in the wheelchair. And I thought, how's he gonna accept this? How's he gonna deal with me like this? I was the rough and tumble dad, and now I'm in a wheelchair with one leg and one arm that works. Well, he came running out of the house and he came running toward me, but sure enough, he ran right past me. He just went right, right past me. And I thought, well, I knew it would be hard for him. And so, and I just peeked over my shoulder to see what Spencer was doing. And actually, yes, he had run by me, but what he was doing is he had run across the street and he was knocking on all the neighbor's doors. And he was saying, come out, come out, my dad's home. My dad made it home. Come see my dad. And so I realized, gosh, in, in all my judgment of my condition, he was so happy to have me there. And eventually he did run and he threw himself on my lap. He wrapped his arms around me and I held him. And 
And I said, you know, it's going to be like this for a while. Are you going to be okay? And he said, Dad, if you were nothing but a puddle of blood, I would still love you. And I, then I just, I just burst into tears, you know. This was one of those moments where here I am in a wheelchair holding my living son in this realm. And it was no less divine than when I held my son that passed in that realm. I mean, suddenly heaven is right here. Jeff was fitted with a prosthetic limb and he learned to walk again. And one day he walked into the New Yorker restaurant in Salt Lake City when he saw Tanya for the first time. It was an absolute deja vu. It's like that lightning bolt hit me. Today, Tanya and Jeff are married and they're raising two adopted sons. In March 2018, Jeff released a book called Knowing. In it, he explores how his experiences in the afterlife have guided him to a life of purpose and gratitude. I think the point is love. And that's, that's what God revealed to Moses. That's uh, what Jesus said, to love God is first, to love people uh, as much as we do ourselves is second. And that sums up the whole Bible. Yeah. And um, if that's true, though, we have to be free. We have to truly have a free will because you can't force love. You could put a gun to someone's head that you loved and say, love me. Right. And they could fake it, but we all know you can't force it. Yeah. And I think God created us to be able to love the creator, Yeah, which means he doesn't force us. Mm. You know, um, I've talked to skeptics who will hear Christians say things like that, and they'll say, if God really loves us, then why not alleviate suffering? And that, you know, that would make it easier for us to believe in him. That would make it easier for us to, to love him and be happy. Well, and that actually gets for me into some of what I wrote about in Imagine Heaven. I think the only way to explain it is if God knows there's actually something far, far better and far, far worse than what we experience here. When my daughter was five years old, I remember sitting on the couch one night and my wife had her on her shoulders and was walking through a doorway and my daughter reached up and grabbed the doorway and flipped over backwards, came down on her head in the tile. And I heard the worst shriek I've ever heard in my life. It's just like, it tears me up even thinking about it. Well, it turns out she had subdural bleeding, which you can die from. If, if you have bleeding under the skull, it can pressure up the brain and, and kill you. So we had to take her to the hospital. They had to shoot her with dye to see what was going on. And that just terrified her. But the horrible part was the next day they had to do it again. So to see if the bleeding had gone down and she saw them coming at her with the needles and she just starts thrashing about and, and screaming. And the doctor looked at me and said, dad, you're going to have to hold her down. Oh my gosh. I mean, I had to pin my little five-year-old daughter while she's screaming, said, daddy, don't let them hurt me. Don't let them hurt me. Why are you letting them hurt me? And she's crying and I'm crying because from her little five-year-old mind, why is daddy hurting her? But I knew that there's something much, much worse that could happen if I don't allow her to go through the short-term pain. Right. 
And there's something much, much better if she's healed, right? There's life ahead. Right. And one day she'll understand. I think only in light of heaven do we make sense of the sufferings and the pains and the trials and the evils of this world and why God would allow it for a time. And yet in the scripture, he says he catches every tear and he suffers with us. This is the amazing thing about the, the claims of Jesus is that Jesus was foretold. And in Isaiah 53, one of the places it's foretold what this Messiah would do. And this is 680 years before Jesus came. He's going to come as the suffering servant. Yeah. He's going to enter into our pain. He's going to take it on himself and, and through that heal us. Right. And not just 2,000 years ago. He still is in it with us today. And imagine heaven. John tells the stories of three blind people who had near-death experiences. One of them is Vicky. When she was killed in a car accident, she says she left her body and could see for the first time. It was the first time she saw herself, but she was on an operating room table. She only knew it was her body from the engravement on her wedding ring and her long hair. She ends up going through what she called, and many people talk about it like a tunnel or a pathway. They describe it different ways. I kind of wonder, as an engineer scientist, is that like a wormhole from our yeah. space-time dimensions into God's expanded dimensions. The I don't fifth know. Dimension. But she comes out. Yeah. yeah. She comes out in this place and it's it's like a garden of grass and trees and flowers and people. And there she sees and, and she said, and the light, now this is the thing that's crazy. They say the light comes out of things. And the light is is palpable. It's not light like we have. It's not hard to look at. And the light is love. And the light is life, and it's coming out of things. So then she sees Jesus, who she said is brighter than all of them. This is common. Brighter than the sun, but easy to look at. Jesus is? Yes. In all of these? Yes. Okay. In all of these. And what's interesting, all around the globe, even if they don't recognize him as Jesus, they describe him the same way. Is that right? Brilliant. Brighter than the sun. Love like they've never experienced. Know their every thought and motive. Non-Christians. Uh, oh, yeah. And by the way, Isaiah, one of the Old Testament prophets, says, there's no need of sun or moon in heaven, for the glory of God is its light. And the Lamb, referring to Jesus, illuminates, and the nations will walk in that light. Wow. And God is love. And so his glory is his light and the life and love and it's coming out of us. So I got a couple questions. Well, well, let, me, let me finish, <laughs> okay, the finish your story because the Vicky story is so good. So in Jesus' presence, so she describes him. He's got a beard, lights coming out of the beard. Yeah. Um, he has a, a robe on. He, she describes him and he gives her a life review. So that's another commonality is they relive their lives. Kind of in a judgmental way. No, but they see it for what it truly is. They see the good and the bad. They see the impact of every little action and its ripple effects. And every interaction with each person, they didn't just see their interaction with that person. They felt what that person felt. Wow. For some, they are condemning themselves because they realize, oh my gosh, I know what it's all about now. It really is all about love and how we treat one another. And why was I that way? Why... And they all come back knowing that. They all come back knowing if they experience God, they experience the God of love. 
And they know what he wants is for us to love one another. Yeah. There's no doubts about that. When Vicky was resuscitated, she was still blind, but now she could physically describe people that she knew from having seen them in her life review. And she described them in ways that only a seeing person could. Now this is where things get even stranger. Not everyone who comes back from the dead comes back with an uplifting story about light and love. Some people cross over into a much darker and more desperate place. If you think about this world then as a diminutive world, it's a, it's a shrunk down experience of real life yeah. so that the highs aren't as high and the lows aren't as low. We only know the little taste of love and joy and peace we get here. Yeah. But what if it's like nothing compared to the feast we're designed to have, but also we only get a little taste of humans playing God. Right. And, and honestly, I think that is the root of all evil is that we all want to be God. I want my will and ways done. Right. And so it's every man, woman, and child for themselves rule. So what if we're experiencing a small glimpse of hell? Yeah. But what might it be like when people are given free reign without any of the love or light yeah. or joy or all the good gifts God's given? Imagine. Imagine the worst prison yeah. times a thousand. Yeah. Oh, I see your daughter on the on the table at the hospital, you know, with the needle and the needle at that moment seems like the worst possible thing but you know because you see from a different vantage point there's much worse yeah and, and so from god's perspective if he sees that then he allows us to go through it yeah because truly i think this is a time of choosing people usually think about the afterlife as a new beginning if you were good in this life, you get your new beginning in paradise. But if you were bad in this life, you start from scratch in hell. But as John spoke, I began to wonder, what if the afterlife really isn't something totally new and different? What if it's really an amplified continuation of life as we know it? What if the happiness we feel in this life, all the joy of friends and food, family and wine, love and sex, what if it's only a fraction of the pleasure we'll know on the other side? I like that idea. But if that's what we're saying, then it stands to reason that all the darkness we experience on this earth, the loneliness and self-loathing and the violence, it could also be infinitely magnified in hell. We talked to a survivor who experienced the dark side of the afterlife. I was a, um art professor at Northern Kentucky University. I was married, had two kids, and was having some small success as a professional artist. And I was an atheist. And I thought I was living the American dream. You know, two cars, a house, a dog. In 1985, Howard and his wife took a group of students to Paris for three weeks. On the last day of the trip, standing in his hotel room, Howard cried out in pain. I had a perforation of the small stomach called the duodenum. I didn't know that at the time, all I knew was that I was experiencing the most intense pain I'd ever had in my entire life. An ambulance raced him to the hospital in critical condition. Doctors told him he needed emergency surgery within an hour or he'd die, but no surgeons were available to help. 
Howard says he waited for 10 hours without any pain medications. The pain which had taken me to the ground, screaming, kicking in terror, got worse and worse and 10 times worse and 20 times worse and 100 times worse. And I was struggling to stay alive because I was very terrified of the prospect of dying because I knew, like any sane, rational person knew, that when you died, you're dead and that's it and there wasn't anything else. I was 100% convinced that death was just like, turn the light switch off, it's over. We are an electrochemical organism. When that ceases to function, there's no more function. At 8.30 that night, a nurse came into the room and said they were unable to locate a doctor and they would try and get one the next day. And for hours, I had been struggling to stay alive. And when she said that, it was like, that was it. I mean, no more hope. The doctors in the U.S. told me my maximum life expectancy was five hours. So I I fought the good fight, and I was done. I mean, I was, you know, physically, emotionally exhausted, spent. I said goodbye to my wife, and um, I closed my eyes and went unconscious. Don't know how long I was unconscious, of course, but I don't think very long. When I awoke and I found myself standing in the room, feeling better than I'd ever felt in my entire life, completely bodily intact. I felt wonderful. And then I noticed that there was a piece of meat in the bed that I'd been in. And when I looked at the face that was turned away from me, it looked just like me, which was um, very disturbing because I knew that I was alive, standing there looking at this thing. And I knew that that thing was gone. And I tried to uh, speak to my wife. She didn't acknowledge my existence, which made me very angry because I thought she was punishing me for giving her such a bad day. And uh, I heard people calling me by name outside the room in English. And so I went over the doorway and they were saying, hurry up, let's go. We're waiting for you. And I said, I'm sick. I have been waiting for a doctor. I'm supposed to have surgery. And I said, we know all about you. We've been waiting for you for a long time. Hurry up, let's go. So I thought that meant that they were going to take me to surgery. And I left the room and went with them, and they took me on a very, very long journey. We walked into complete darkness, and I was terrified because they had become um, very rude and crude towards me. And I said, I'm not going to go with you any further. And they said, you've got further to go. Keep going. And I refused to move. So they started to push and pull at me, and I fought back with them. What did they look like? There were men and women, no children. The more I resisted, the more they enjoyed tormenting me. And this went on for um, a very, very long time, them biting and tearing and invading me in every way that they could, in which I eventually was um, all ripped up on the ground of that place, unable to um, even respond to um, being kicked anymore. Did you feel pain in the moment? (laughs) Yeah. Terrible pain. But the worst pain was the psychological pain of having that. I don't talk about it, actually. I've never told anyone what really happened. And I can't talk about it now. We're going to save the rest of Howard's journey for next week's episode. 
I'll also be talking to John about the question on everybody's mind, who gets to go to heaven and who has to go to hell and why. If you have questions or feedback about part one of this episode, email us at maybegodpod at gmail.com. And as always, guys, thank you so much for listening to Maybe God. God is produced by Eric Huffman, Brandon Duke, and me, Julie Merle Coltois. Our sound engineers are Pat Lowry and Aubrey Snyder. Our editor is Brittany Holland. Music is by Nathan Bonus, and our intern is Caroline Love. If you have questions or doubts you'd like us to address in upcoming episodes of Maybe God, email us at maybegodpod at gmail.com or start a discussion with us on our Facebook page, Maybe God Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe now on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app.